0: Hello. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to this very first session, bright and early, uh, for Writers' Week this year. My name's Kath Keneally and before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the Kaurna people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to Elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land and we acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. A couple of things f- for you to note. Make sure your phones are turned to silent or off. If you're tweeting or Instagramming, hashtag is ADLWW. And we ask you to support our Authors and Adelaide Writers Week by purchasing books at the book tent. And there will indeed be a book signing at the end of this session <clears throat> for the author, Kate Hall, who's appearing today. And be COVID safe and follow the messaging on the screens and in the garden. So, let's get going. I'm sure you've done your homework and had a look at... Uh, how we're billed for this session. It's a rather sombre note to be striking at the beginning of Writers' Week. Uh, incremental loss is uh, the heading that we're operating under. There were going to be two writers talking today and uh, Charlotte McConaughey hasn't been able to make it, sadly. But very happy to have Kate Mildenhall with me this morning, she is so so happy to be here. I'm so excited, Kat. She's jumping I'm out of her skin. She's come from Melbourne. <laughs> Can <Couldn't> you tell?
1: <laughs>
0: and she was going to get here by hook or by crook, and here she is. So her two books to date, and she's working hard on the third one. I'm told are Skylarking, and the one that we're talking about today, The Mother Fault. Uh, Kate is a creative writing teacher and a mother, and she lives in Hurstbridge in Victoria. Skylarking was long-listed for Best debut Fiction in the Indie Book Awards 2017 and the 2017 Voss Literary Prize. Uh, she co-hosts the First Time podcast as well. And The Mother Fault was launched in September.
1: It was, via Zoom, of course. Via Zoom.
0: <laughs> so... Um, We're giving it a a big welcome this morning. I found it a fascinating read. If Kate doesn't mind, I'll just do a little pricey uh, of the story. So, um, it's set in a a recognisable but climate-altered Australia in the near future. It's a story of Mim. Uh, She's a formerly tenured geologist who's put that aside to bring up two children, Essie and Sam, who are 11 and 6. And her environmentally conscious husband, Ben, is a FIFO engineer and works in Indonesia at a mine operated by China and Australia jointly. And his role there is to minimise environmental damage and thereby hangs a tail. Uh, She has a fairly comfortable life in Melbourne She's microchipped as are nearly all of uh, the population at the moment, at that moment. And she's caught up in the usual daily worries of uh, mothering and getting kids to school on time and everything seems fairly normal until Ben disappears and can't be find- found and his uh, chip's not responding So she has to make some fairly uh, life-altering decisions, fairly quick smart because the department who are the only department in government who control every aspect of life, drop in for a cup of tea, offer their help and take away her passports and the children's passports and uh, more or less warn her to stay put, which is what she doesn't do. She does not, (laughs) indeed. So, I thought I'd ask you first up, Kate, Skylarking was your first novel, that was set in the past and it was based on a real historical event and this one's set in the near future. Why was that? Did Did you think it seemed urgent to write a fable for our times? Oh, that's a good question, and I don't know if I thought I could do anything
1: like write a, a fable for our times, but I, the first part of that, that, that answer is that I am very stubborn, and what tends to happen is that when one writes historical fiction for their first book, and it, it goes reasonably well, one is expected to write another historical fiction uh, in the same kind of vein, and I have never been one... To follow what I was supposed to do, so I, I really wanted, um, in some ways, to kind of stretch my legs and and to have a go at something else. And also, I have not had the luxury, which I know some writers say they have, of having numerous ideas from which to choose. So, <laughs> the uh, the idea for the mother fault came, and I've got a, a word document um, on my computer that says do not do not look at this or do not open this until skylarking is done. <laughs> but I just had in it. Um, Woman with kids forced to forced to flee Australia, and it was deep in. It was deep in, um, which we are still doing, of course, uh, locking up people who seek shelter on our shores. But it was deep in that. I had two little kids at the time, and I was really trying to grapple with that idea of of how I could be, on some days, so frustrated with my children that I wanted to put them in the rubbish bin, uh, and yet know that if push came to shove, I would. Do anything. Do anything to to keep them safe. So so that's where the idea was. And as I started started writing it and as as Mim came to me and I kind of was grappling with with pushing her a little bit away from my own experience because we do have that problem sometimes when we write ourselves, um, I realised that I I wanted it to be Australia but I I needed to push it forward and I needed to have all my anxieties about... About government, about surveillance, about privacy. Um, I needed to pull those in. but what I did do was then drew from other historical moments, other places. I was just reading this morning about um, Xinjiang Province, again, you know, places like that to kind of develop that mm. future, I suppose.:
0: All right, uh, and before we leave your first book, so the heroine of that of skylarking, I kept thinking of her as a sort of a Joe March character. Okay. Little Women, and she's she's set in the... It's the early 20th century? I, I, um, 1880. 1887. Uh, 19th yeah. century. Uh, and she's resisting being tied down by convention until her wings get clipped by tragic circumstance. Yeah. But in The mother fault, Mim is already struggling with disenchantment and anxiety as an adult and a mother, as you were explaining. I wonder if they resemble each other at all in your mind. Uh, I...
1: I love that, Kath, and I, and I think they do. And in many ways, I think, you know, Skylarking was a book that I wrote very much about, about young women and friendship and best friendship and um, those, those enormous feelings we have and the kind of romance of, of friendship as well. Um, and that was something that I really wanted to get out at the time and it was very urgent to me at that time. Um, I couldn't not write... About the experience of motherhood, um, you know, mother. The mother fault took me about four years to write, and over that time, I, you know, I now have a ten-year-old and a seven-year-old, and I was deep, I was deep in the kind of kinder drop-off, you know, the bits where you only have three hours at a time, and um, and so I had to write my kind of frustration and some of my my resentment and my joy yes. into the book. And my poor um, my poor husband, <laughs> when he first read a section of the book, he said, "It's." Pretty close to the bone, isn't it? In in some parts. Said, so what do you mean? You know, where do you think I got my inspiration from? But um, yeah, I think there there is a, a development there that you know I, I wonder where that goes next. I can only hope that you know as yeah. I continue to write that those that those women characters continue to develop.
0: Yeah, yeah, because in fact you do have an epilogue to Skylarking where you give us a a possible fictional outcome. I do. For Kate,
1: and it was wrong.
0: Oh, really? it was
1: wrong I have to tell this story I, I know I shouldn't be talking about my old book but I will Go for it. Um, I wrote I, I Skylarking is, is about this this girl called Kate who I became obsessed with and a terrible thing happens in her life and um, I worked at State Library Victoria I was very lucky to work at State Library mm-hmm. Victoria for a time and um, I did all my research I did I did everything properly but I could not find uh, the real the real Kate so I I um, I fictionalised her, I, I imagined a long future where she continued to think of um, her best friend as the great love of her life and then at an event like this after after Skyliking came out a woman um, a woman approached me and she said, um, I think I found your Kate in, in the record Ooh. and uh, she said, um, I'll, I'll send it to you and she sent me... I, I'm sure people in the audience are fam, um, familiar with ancestry.com, and you know things get uploaded all the time, so you never—it's always changing. And so I found I found my Kate, and uh, and there was a tragic early death for her, and I, oh, I no. was filled with grief again. Oh, she she dear. died when she was only 27, but I but I did end up finding a descendant, and uh, two years after Skyline came out, we caught the train. ...in the Blue Mountains, it was kind of that... ...I'll be wearing a blue hat on the on the third carriage. I had an enormous bunch of flowers and we... caught co- Fred, his name was, he was in his 70s... ...and we caught the train down to South Head um, and to the cemetery... ...and we visited Kate's grave. It was... Oh, it gives me shivers just thinking about it... ...because it was such a beautiful kind of full circle moment for for that book... ...and um, and to find a kind of resolution. Uh, and I, I did... I did a call a mentor of mine who writes historical fiction, Kelly Gardner, and I said, I've done something terrible, Kelly. You know, I wrote a different future for her. I, I feel like I should take the book back. And she said, no, you gave it, um, you know, you gave her another possibility, which yeah. I think is a, a wonderful thing that fiction that yeah. fiction can do.
0: It absolutely is. I have loads of questions here and uh, itching to ask them, but maybe if, uh, to get a, a flavour of the book, we could ask Kate to read a little bit to get us started.
1: I can. I've, as you can see, I forgot to bring my book with me because I'm very out of practice with actually leaving my house, being a Melbourneian, so I've had to just borrow a book and use leaves here. <laughs> forgive me. Um, this is early, early in the book. It gives, it gives you a sense of the kind of future that I've imagined and I promise that this was fully copy-edited and published, ready to go before um, March of last year and everything that, that happened. The world shifted slowly, then so fast, while they watched but didn't see. They weren't stupid or even oppressed in the beginning. Let the record show that. There were no assassinations, no riots. The people invited the new government to take charge at the ballot box. The two parties had consumed themselves, left the system wide open for a third option. Reasonable, populated by diverse public figures, backed by both big money and big ideology. On a platform of innovative and economically viable responses to the climate emergency a rehaul of the health housing and disability schemes that would see the most vulnerable members of the community cared for and a foreign policy that miraculously spoke both to the fear of the other and fluid borders ideal for capital in and capital out the new party was humbly triumphant on election night simple elegant No need for finite portfolios and the bullshit of bureaucracy, their words, appealing to the everyday Australian. Centralised power was the answer. One department for one nation. The department of everything. A party who promised a different way, a better way, and a populace who needed to believe them. Like geology, history repeats itself. Sometimes it's just hard to see. And then within their first 100 days in office, their greatest test... Mim didn't personally know anyone at the MCG on the day of the attacks, although by degrees of separation there were a few. Someone shoots that many footy fans in a city like Melbourne during a preliminary final and everyone's going to know someone. Likewise, the bank hack didn't affect them directly. She didn't go through the months of hell of getting the administration of their life back on track. But like everyone else, they did bear the pain of soaring interest rates. And then the bio-threat. The government tried to keep everyone level-headed at... The start at least. There were protocols in place for the media by then, supposedly to counteract scaremongering and division. So for a while, they only knew that security at the Medisec facility outside of Geelong had been compromised. Eventually it got out. Two security officers and a virologist were dead. The terrorists had known what they were doing. They only took one frozen vial. They only needed one. There was enough terror in that particular strain to last a generation. So that's what they lived with. The knowledge that nothing was sacred. And nothing was safe, not their money, not their health and not their football games.
0: Okay, (laughs) so uh, there's the flavour. And you envisage a situation where Mim, in her particular difficulty, is left without any of the usual supports that she might have because the state has intervened so fully into every aspect of people's lives that she can't reach out to anybody mm. without endangering them. It was such a tense read. It was so easy to imagine, I found. Was it a big stretch of the imagination for you? Or, or are you feeling that this is creeping up?
1: Yeah, I think that there was there was a lot of fear. And interestingly, you know, I, of course I wrote this before... Um, before COVID, before the pandemic, but that that fear that, that rolled in um, that I'm sure everyone felt uh, in those first couple of months, where certainly for me and thinking about the kids, I was like, is this the moment that we're supposed to panic? You know, is this the moment where everything where everything turns and I do have a bag packed, like, without wanting to get panicked or conspiracy theorist about it, you know, is, is this the moment? And I think that idea that, that things change so slowly and, and the frog in the boiling water and all of that, that we don't actually pay attention to what is to what is happening around us and i think that's what's happened to mim and mim also has that experience um which i know certainly from many of the women that i speak to and the parents that i speak to with with younger kids have of of being isolated of of suddenly being thrown into this moment of having had a career and a life and all the you know and, and and going to to work every day and then suddenly going what is this strange thing of being home with with a small human what am i supposed to do with this and that 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 your world can become very small straight away mm. but th- the other aspect of that the idea of her being isolated one of the problems that i had really early on is that I kept asking myself, what would I do in this situation? What would I do if, if I was suddenly threatened? You know, where would I run? How would I get cash? What would I do? Mm. And I knew that my support network, you know, my gang of girlfriends who I've known since since year 12 and we all had babies together and married blokes from the same gang, um, they would do anything for me. You know, they would, they would break any kind of rule that they could for me. So I also needed to make Mim someone who had become isolated, both... Mm both from her work and, and who had pulled herself back yeah. a little bit because um, I didn't want her to have those those easy options, except, of course, for Heidi, who, um, who makes the ultimate kind of sacrifice for her.
0: Exactly. I, I think... All right, we'll get to that. And backtracking again a little bit, I do... I, I really like the insecurities that you give Mim because it sort of matters, really, to the unfolding of the, the novel. But right at the beginning, you've used a, a Gwen Harwood poem, as an epigraph, uh, where Gwen is talking about the wild daughters becoming women, right back to monkey bosom, lemur breast. Uh, And in this book, Wim has a very gutsy 11-year-old daughter called Essie, uh, on the threshold of puberty, uh, you know, clear about in her mind about absolutely everything, critical fulcrum of this story. Did you think of her as a sort of a foil for Mim? Yes. Yes, I did. And um, Essie
1: leapt off the page, demanded her, her space on the, on the page, really. I, you know, I have a, a, a 10-year-old who demands her space uh, in, in life and, and certainly she, w- she was part of that. But I think also um, th- that idea of, of uh, you know, daughters becoming women and them growing Away from you, and and being able to be strong and clear-eyed uh, in the ways that you're not, and I think too, you know, I've I've been writing this through the extraordinary kind of climate activism of of young young people and seeing young women demanding their space, um, yeah, being sick of it, mm. you know, honestly, I think of the last kind of couple of weeks in uh, in Canberra and just being being sick of it mm. and and being ready to just um, Say that with with utter clarity, and so uh, she was she was a joy she was a joy to write and frustrating too because because <laughs> I was frustrated with her, <laughs> um, and the way I think you know there's that beautiful Morris Sendak quote about how the children you know the children always know you know we we try and protect our kids um, from dark things and from difficult things and um, but you can't the the last year shows that mm. you know they they know what's going on mm. and they have such um, such wisdom about it often as well Mm. so she certainly um she certainly brought that out
0: yeah she sure did um what about the title the mother fault it's is i don't suppose it's anything as neat as a geological well, it isn't
1: actually term, a technical a, t- a technical uh, term. I had the great pleasure of um, having Charlotte Wood as as my mentor uh, through the writing of this book, and and she did a read for me, and she said, "Now, Kate, I cannot find the the geological term anywhere the motherfucker." And I said, "No, no, I made it up. I made it up." <laughs> but but I've, I kept a journal too during the process. One of the things that I found while I was writing Skylarking, when I got to this kind of part when people Mm. were asking me questions about it is that someone would ask me a question and I'd think I'd I'd say with great conviction oh yes this is how I came to that that decision in the book and then I'd go back and I go no that's not how it happened at all you know and and I was thrown by the idea that I couldn't understand my own process so this time with the mother fault I kept a journal it's 175,000 words um and it is a mess and it kept on crashing my computer of course but um in it I found I went back and I found the day where I was playing with with words and um, possible ideas for the title and I kind of come to the mother's fault and I called my mum. I have family members in the audience who will, who will know um, what, my, what my mum might respond like and she said, oh God, Kate, you can't call it that. And I said, what, what do you mean? And she said, well, it's always the mother's fault. Like that's people right. will just be so cross. And I said, mum, that's the point. Like <laughs> it is always the mother's, the mother's fault. Um, and to her it was um, inflammatory. You know, to, to call it that, for it to sit on the shelf and mm. call it that. And I like that. Mm. I like being a little bit inflammatory at times. Um, so, it spoke to that. It spoke to the mother load. It spoke to that idea of um, the tectonics and um, mm. that <coughs> shifting idea that, you know, Australia... I, I spent so much time. I went and sat in on geology lectures. I, I talked my way into first-year geology lectures and, and spoke to a number of geologists and got deeply, deeply obsessed <laughs> with geology, so much so that we travelled around Australia obviously not last year, the year before, and my kids said, "Mom, can we stop taking pictures of rocks? Mm-hmm. Like, we're so sick of all the rocks. <laughs> um, because it's a... I mean, it's, it's a gift of a metaphor as well. Yeah,
0: it yeah. absolutely is. Yeah. Oh, there you go. That's interesting. And that's the creative writing teacher in you, the journal yeah. and going back to see where you... And, and that was my next question, because... For all of the big themes and we could talk about those in a sombre sort of a way for the whole session but as a writer this the idea for this novel must have appealed to you for its ripping yarn possibilities so, so such a dramatic such a nail-biting well
1: story I'm glad I'm glad that it's a ripping yarn I wanted to write a page turner and you know it's very funny in the last um in the last week. Um, the Motherfault, you know, wonderfully, thrillingly, has been um, long listed for an ABA award in, in general fiction and then hilariously long listed for a design award for this, you know, <laughs> the stunning cover in literary fiction. And it's very funny for writers because we don't, you know, yeah. we don't have a say about that part of it. That's to do with our publisher and, and the way that the marketplace and booksellers kind of want to pitch our book. But, but right at the start, when I, when I was talking about this book, I said, you know, I want it to be like an explosive helicopters coming in kind of movie. I'm a sucker for those kind of movies, you know. Um, At the same time as, as, um, you know, I I want to write a beautiful book as Mm. well. I want both those things and I think I should be able to do both of those things. Um, So, I love that. I love that aspect of it. And really in the end, to to keep someone on the page, um, and I find this in in the books that I read as well... um, you know, you just have to, you have to be there at two o'clock in the morning thinking, nah, can't, I, I cannot put it down, I, I want to find this, this out. And, you know, if you chuck a road trip in there and, and a, a trip by boat as well, it, it gives it its own momentum. So, that, that was a gift as well. I had, instead of having a, a kind of a plot picture or diagram that you might have, I just had a map of Australia. Um, and, you know, this changing line that I kept moving as it, as it got to Darwin and then fell off, fell off the edge into the ocean.
0: And speaking of that, greater commitment has no novelist than to learn to sail a yacht learned to, for well, the sake of her art.
1: Yes. I, I would not say in the captain, Captain Neville, who I was on the yacht with, would not say that I have actually learned to sail at all. I did make an excellent cup of coffee and I did keep watch, you know, for other yachts logs going past in the middle of the night. But one of the things I did when I I was Googling... I've never sailed before in my life, but I knew that there was a yacht trip and I knew that I really needed... The the thing that I wanted to know was, I wonder what it feels like to be in the middle of the ocean and only be able to see water. How terrifying must that moment be, especially if you have your kids with you? I'm the kind of mum who finds it relatively stressful to be on a um, jetty with my children, kind of holding them back from the edge. So I thought, how would you cope with that on board a yacht? So I was Googling know how would you get from darwin to to indonesia and and i found this yacht race and in the spur of the moment as a as a novelist does at night i sent off an email saying i have absolutely no experience but i'm very friendly and enthusiastic (laughs) and i'm a quick learner and i'm writing a book and i would love to uh to crew on your yacht and thought nothing else of it you know thought there is no way actually a friend who uh, does these kinds of things, who's much younger than me said, you're not the type of person that they take on board a yacht as a crew member. So um, I was very surprised then to get a call from Neville, from Darwin, who uh, only about two weeks out from the race, who said, look, I've got a spot, it's come up, I need someone to hot bunk, because I've only got, I've got one woman and I need someone to share a, share a bunk with her. And I was like, I don't know what hot bunking is, but I will do it. (laughs) immediately and my husband said look if you get up there and you, and you feel off about it having great faith in my intuition he said just get on a, a flight and come home so I did I I flew up to Darwin I jumped aboard this yacht with six blokes and um one gorgeous woman Joy and um and we sailed to to Indonesia uh in this yacht race and I thought I was going to die I clearly wasn't and they thought it was very funny that I thought I was going to die because I was like on the edge of the boat thinking oh like why are we going so fast and it was about 12 knots but um and I was bruised and you know and and also the kind of these were sailors who could tell some stories like about because I, I always want to know how to how do you do things illegally you know I'm always asking those questions how might you sneak someone in or out of of Darwin, and they had some excellent tales. Um,
0: ah.
1: I was on the late shift, so I, I would be up from midnight till till 6 a.m. keeping watch, and it was the most extraordinary thing I think I've ever done. And and it and it was useful for the book because I did things like understand understand that uh, that a yacht kind of surfs down a wave if you're doing it right you know like that feeling I, I suddenly understood what that meant or that you are bruised you know one night I didn't quite understand how how everything works in a yacht and I failed to snib the um, the door properly and kind of came out you know in my having had a shower like burst through four doors because I didn't realize <laughs> what you needed to do um, so all of those things um, I, I understood what it was like to be on the open ocean and then getting to Indonesia as well and being in a place um, and being on my own without my family and for the first time, those who travel will know <laughs> when you finally get a moment to travel on your own after you've been with everyone else and you're allowed to just turn at any corner and not like get consensus on where we're going to go and where <laughs> we're going to eat and you know what time will we meet up again. And, I, and so I felt this real excitement about... Getting an old version of myself back, mm. and that was very much what I, I wanted, Mim to represent that that women I feel, um, kind of, kind of almost um, erase past selves in this effort to okay this is the new me now mm. I'm a career woman or this is the new me now I'm a mum or this is the new me I'm doing something else without mm. drawing on the. Um, the strength, I suppose, of all those things, being able to be multiple things at once. So, it was an extraordinary experience.
0: I think Mim thinks to herself at one point, to her absent husband, who she's in search of, you won't recognise me yeah. when you see me again. Yeah. Mm. And, and that's exactly it, that she, um, she needs
1: that extraordinary kind of um, journey that she takes to... Find herself being able again. I, I really clearly remember, um, you know, I ended up having to have an emergency seizure for my for my first child. So, you know, I had someone around. My my husband stayed with me for six six weeks. Was able to stay with me for six weeks, and I I clearly remember the day that he went off to work and just thinking, I I don't know how to do this. Like you can't possibly leave me on my own and having to remind myself, like, you are a very capable human being who's done a lot of things in your life. You can stay at home with a small human and be okay. But I had, um, in six weeks, I had utterly de-skilled myself Mm. and I needed to to relearn that. So that was Mm. a lot of what I wanted.
0: Well, I might go with um, that because one of the things that I thought about this book and that that give it its depth uh, is that Mim's backstory is so convincing and you load her up with an awful lot of insecurities like Mm -hmm. that. And, in fact, you almost suggest that she had difficulty bonding with Essie, that, you know, there was... ..that she's still catching up, playing catch-up with that. And then there's the matter of her birth family and the episodes with her birth family are really quite powerful and all of the issues that are ongoing there uh, the family's divided over principles but also along gender and family hierarchy lines and she hasn't sorted those out at all Mm. she goes back to see the folks at home and you kind of suggest that she's not really the best judge mm. even of what's going on there. That's very convincing. So she's she's a shaky heroine, isn't yeah. she?
1: She is really shaky and she's um it's interesting, I obviously haven't had the chance until today to be with um real life readers, but um I've done a lot of, you know, book clubs and online events and and she divides people as well. Mm. Um, she people are angry with, with her or say, you know, she shouldn't have done that. She shouldn't have put her kids in danger and I think you know the the way that most of us have to do life (laughs) is to make a series of split decisions really with uh, thinking at each time um well certainly for me mostly (laughs) I'm probably doing this wrong but um but I'm going to have to to go with it anyway um and that you know that rage that she has with her family that feeling of both um wanting to reject some of 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 them and and what they've done, but also still being a kid, mm. you know, and wanting to be loved and wanting to be accepted, wanting to have that, you know, those instances with her big brother. You know, she's so angry at him, and 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 it's an old it's an old hurt that just comes up again and again. I think those mm. old hurts, you know, we it's very hard to get rid of old hurts.
0: Insoluble, probably. Yeah, yeah.
1: absolutely. But I but I wanted her to be, um, I wanted her to be someone that that a woman could pick up at the end or any reader could pick up at the end and go, yeah, good on you, Mim. Mm. Like, that was tough, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, but good on you because I think we so often get... Um, we get male heroines in all kinds of guises and when I think about crime, you know, crime fiction in particular, we have these, you know, flawed in so many <laughs> ways, these flawed ex-detectives who, you know, we adore, who get through to the end, but we don't allow our women to be as flawed. Mm. And we don't allow... Uh, someone had a... Converse, Jock Sorong had a conversation with me, Um, great Melbourne writer, had a conversation with me about we also don't allow our women to be in any way sexually transgressive or make mistakes mm. in, in that way, which, which Mim does, um, because then we are, we are very angry with them. And that's one of the things that people were divided on with, with Mim as well. Yeah, exactly.
0: All right. Uh, well, back to the Big Brother theme then. So here we are... Very suddenly, it seems Australia is a country of spies and tattletales, and we could just talk about this week's news here. But you know, we'll, we'll go on with protesters and misfits very swiftly removed out of sight. To where? Where do they go?
1: Ah, yes, they go to Best Life. They go to uh, Best Life, which is which is a you know a re-education camp, but very much um, based on the idea of estates. I'm not as familiar with Adelaide, but but on the outskirts of, of Melbourne, the kind of Northern Rim particularly, um, they have sprouted in the last 20 years, I suppose, just these endless, endless acres of estates that all, cookie cutter houses that all look the same, but woefully, um, in terms of access and in terms of the types of things you have in there, just, you know, no provision at all made for them. Yep. Um, but people end up being... Caught in them and, and never leaving them. Um, so the idea in the book is the best life estates have, of course, been been bought in as a fantastic um, answer to all of our social problems, and people can go there and be looked after. Uh, but as in, um, you know, the New Yorker article I was reading this morning again about um, Xinjiang province, you know, they are actually uh, the, the gate turns one way, and they and they're not allowed out. I love that. Um, You know, hashtag best life, living my best life. uh, I think is is also part of it that you know it can look so shiny and delightful on the outside, but if we are not paying attention, um, this is this is what can happen. This is what can happen to us. And that idea that the government just slowly, like I, I do think, which departments were all rolled into one a couple of years ago? I know that arts certainly is. It's not a department anymore <laughs> at all. But that idea that we would just be um, under this very benevolent kind of bureaucracy that just takes away any idea of us questioning anything at, at all was, yeah. was what I wanted to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, all, too, all too possible to imagine. Yeah. And so in this situation where the department has iron control and eyes everywhere and nearly everyone is microchipped for their own good... For their own good. Uh, Everybody still maintains a a show of normalcy Mm. uh, and this is set up very well by having your characters able to remember how things were different Mm. not long ago and obviously older people in the book remember but so do Mim and her old boyfriend Nick who comes up as the the person who takes her away in the boat. Um, What are some of the things that they remember that have gone well, they remember, I suppose, that
1: sense of, um, of, of possibility, of, of life being normal. They remember, um, you know, Mim has a, a moment um, in Darwin in terms of climate. You know, mm. and looking, um, she's in the marina, and she looks down, and she can see the old marina under under the water. Yeah, that's there. lovely. And that, you know, I did a lot of looking those incredible CSIRO maps, which show um, possible sea level rise, and and that was some of the research that I did to get. I didn't I didn't want to write a cli-fi novel, um, but I but you can't write a novel right now without obviously um, looking at at that most present kind of challenge that we have. Um, so, they remember uh, a life like that. Essie is so angry as well at Mim. Like, why didn't you do something? You're the grown-ups. Why didn't you do something when you could? Why didn't you see what was happening? Um, so, that's the kind of life. Nick and, and Mim's um, memory too of, you know, summer romances like... Again, this is my book where I tried to just fit everything that I love into it. Like, I want a good old kind of motorbike chase. I want, a uh, you know, the the yacht. I want um, uh, an old flame come in. Like, let's just see if I can shove everything that I love into into one book. Some beach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Mm. So, um, you know, Nick is representative. Nick has um conscientiously objected, uh, to having the um, the implant, which was uh, plot wise very handy. Uh, so he is reminiscent of that old, an old time, someone who has always been a bit of a cynic Mm -hmm. about what the government might do,
0: Mm. you know. Yeah, and I suppose it's a love story in the sense that Mim risks everything to try and find Ben and then there's Nick the old flame and that transgressive, you know, upwelling of whatever it is, but in a way for me I think it's, it's more about Mim deciding she can love herself. She reinvents yeah. herself and, and tries to get over all of her self-doubt.
1: Yeah. That's lovely, Kath. Thank you. Um, that's similar. One of my dear friends, Penny Russon, um, who's a Melbourne writer, did an early read for me and at one stage she said, Kate, you know that this is a love story between Mim and Essie, don't you? Mm. And and that sense too of... Um, and, and Mim and Essie as a... Um, a last image in the book was always something that I wrote towards, despite the fact that I did 17 different drafts of the um, last part of the book, quite close to the end, before publication. But, um, you know, that was part part of her coming to recognise herself um, and that love that you say for herself um, through her recognition of Essie being... um, being, being something, I think that she saw as um, a, a great uh, her inability or her failure to parent Essie properly, mm, especially okay. as a as a younger as a younger baby, and that they 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 come to a point. Um, you know, which is very—it's—I it's, haven't done this in front of an audience yet, and I'm almost going to cry talking about it. But um, you know, I think that that is something that uh, women, particularly, um, but parents probably more generally, can berate themselves constantly about their uh, their failures, and maybe we do so just as human beings as well. Um, but for Essie to um, recognize the strength in Mim as well, and and to do that, mm. and vice versa, yeah, yeah, is important.
0: Definitely, that's beautiful. Would you read us another little yes. bit? Yes.
1: I do. I have another little bit, just from, just from On the Boat, and this was, um, obviously, my kids weren't on the boat with me, but, but something that I drew directly from it. For an hour or so, it is just her. I on the navigator, on the mainsail, then out on the water. The sun is warm, but not too hot yet. The sparkly throw of light where it catches the waves. Suddenly, beside the boat, something cleaving the water, dark... She starts, stands upright, heart pounding again. Dolphins, two of them, three, God, six more, cutting the waves, leaping next to the boat. Kids, S, Sam, you okay? She hears from Nick's hatch. Dolphins, she calls, and she hears a quiet murmur, a half laugh. Get up here, you two dolphins. In a moment, the kids are at the top of the steps, crusty eyes blinking in the sun. Where, Mum? Here, come here, she beckons with both hands. Look, see, the kids kneel on the seats, leaning forward, wanting to clamber up onto the edge. Careful, there's so many. The pod leap and dive. The sun glistens on the surface of the water, so it is impossible to see where they will rise, leap, one after another, a break for a moment, a lull, and then there they are again, the kids calling. Look, there, Mum. I need a picture. I can't believe this. Aren't they nearly gone? Mum, my screen, SELs. Can you get it? Sam puts his hand out to his sister. It's OK, S. Just watch them. Essie humps but turns back to the sea. Mim calls to them to be careful. But they don't listen or if they hear they choose not to respond. Essie holds onto the rail with one hand, stretches the other out over the waves and the next time a great grey body cuts up out of the water. The water flicks up and sprays her hand and she laughs. Sam yells in delight and he puts his arm out too. Leaning further for he is littler and his arm can't stretch like hers and Mim is caught... Can't, Is calling, careful, careful, hold on, but they are just laughing. Dolphin sprayed, sunlit.
0: Yes, beautiful. So I think we can safely say it's a literary (laughs) novel as well. Um, And when I stood back from the book after reading it and let all of my reactions die down, for all of the political themes, I don't experience it as a political novel in the sense that the harm is done, mm. the control of the department is absolute... Opposition seems to be futile through political channels and the question is simply whether Mim is able to escape. It's a refugee story. Yeah.
1: It is a refugee story and, look, this is something that I um, I really grappled with a lot at the start because as potentially young novelists do or maybe all novelists... at in the beginning, I had these great ambitions that I would write, the great you know allegory, <laughs> the experience of being displaced and of course that is that is not um, my story to write at all. but what I I did want to try and embody was the feeling of what one might do if if they were kind of brutally um, moved from the place that they call that they call home. And the whole idea at the start was looking at boundaries and, and what is home? And is home a place that we feel safe or is it with people uh, with whom we feel safe or under a government uh, that makes us feel safe? And, of course, in the end, um, you know, Mim realises that it is with, with certain people, maybe not all the ones that she thought she, you know, she could be with. But I think... You know, I, I have no answers. I have only only questions and the, and fears, and they were the ones that I wanted to um, bring up. And I think it's unfortunate too, because because. Again in that kind of genre line, you know, you think, okay, well I have to write the, the serious political novel or I or I have to write, you know, the the novel that is for women and only women and only mothers about what it is to, to have children. And like I said before, I, I wanted to shove everything into it. Um and I think that I think that we should be able to do that more. I think that we should have those big big questions and and fears and be able to think. You know my fears about extraction, um, about mining, um, but I don't have any answers. Mm. I carry around my phone like everyone else, mm. with all of its precious minerals in there. I, you know, I, and I think sitting as well with those, um, in those grey spaces, is something that, that that's why we have art. That's why we get to write the questions, ask the questions. That's why coming to festivals is so wonderful and brilliant and, and important, so that we can grapple with all that all that stuff
0: absolutely that that is the correct answer good excellent (laughs) (laughs) the the question though of well the questions of global upheaval and mass migration and now of course global pandemic but especially I think for you in this book and for us reading it how how Nations Respond to the Influx of Newcomers. Mm. And it's going to keep happening. It's producing a a crop of very compelling fiction. And I'm thinking of Lucy Trelaw's Wolf Island. And also that novel American Dirt, which was out there and being read a lot. Um, Largely about those matters of of refugee uh, issues and mass migration and upheaval. And and you say in your acknowledgements, the book began with a scribbled what if... Mm when the Australian government closed its borders to people seeking asylum. So, how has the writing of the book, I guess it has at least sharpened your focus?
1: Yeah, it has. And I did, I spent the first, probably the first year of my research, I just read constantly, I read um, stories of um, refugee experiences and experiences of asylum seekers, especially, especially women, especially women who were fleeing with children, um... The, the extraordinary physical uh, dangers and uh, experiences and then, you know, bureaucratic kind of um, walls that, that they would just keep hitting over and over again. And I think that um, the beauty of having small children who, you know, would, would come with us to, to rallies in, in, in Melbourne when you used to be allowed to go to rallies and, um, and you, know, do, you know, be, be just mind blown by the idea that someone who was seeking safety would not be given and granted that safety when it is enshrined in law um and 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 so i think that that simplicity of of thinking about that argument and you know there is the the empathy argument which you know you could have three whole days just discussing that if that's the way that we are meant to um if we have that right as as novelists, to say, well, let me put myself in those shoes and and see what I would do. But I do think, uh, you know, right up front, that that was my question. I'd written... I was very angry um, with Kevin Rudd, who was in power at the time, and I wrote a a sonnet. I had to do a poetry reading and I wrote a sonnet about, you know, Kevin Rudd having to to put ageing parents in in a boat and, and get them out of the country. And I thought if more of us actually sat with the physical experience of imagining that and and not ask necessarily the people in power who can make those decisions maybe that that would make some kind of a difference but maybe not
0: hmm. what when you pick up the book and flick through it put it down think about it what are you happiest about
1: that's such a good question what i'm happiest that um that i bloody finished the thing really <laughs> um no <laughs> i'm happy um I think they, they say that, that um, in your first couple of books you, you really just, you know, thinly veiled right, your own ex- experience onto the page, um, which, you know, in 10 years' time I might look back and say, gosh, yes, I, d- I did do that, didn't I? I think, though, that the um, the capacity... The, ..the response I've had from readers who have said, ah, oh, you, you got that experience so right for me there's a section where um where mim you know uh is is talking is is reflecting on what ben's done the decisions he's made and she says i could have been a hero too but i was at school pickup and i think in the end that's what i really wanted to say that, that um, sometimes we make decisions and we don't make the heroic decisions and we don't go out and save the world because, in fact, getting the bloody canteen lunch order in on time and not having the teacher call to say you haven't done it again is, is what day-to-day is made up of. And, um, and so that's, that's really important. The other thing I have to say, this, um, this beautiful cover, and it's, it's coming out in the UK soon, and it's got a very kind of um, Jane Harper cover, which is wonderful. She's written something very nice about <laughs> it. But you know, it's it's a very kind of crimey look, black and and dark. But this beautiful cover, um, this this image here is created by an artist who's never done a, a cover art in his life. Um, I found him on Instagram. My best, my darling best friend, uh, said you should check out this guy. He's amazing. He's a collage artist. And Sandy Sandy Cull, who's just been nominated for for this cover, who's the designer, um, contacted this guy and said, can we? Commission art from you. He's a young artist in Hawaii, Uh, and so he created it, you know, with with sails and and things to represent rock and and skin and and the outback. Uh, And I think it's just so beautiful, and it's kind Mm. of changed his life too. He's now started doing a whole lot of cover art. We've been in contact a little bit, and I just I love that kind of thing. That it that it it really is books, you know. are an, an author's baby but as we've found and we, with all arts in the last year, there is a whole community of people who make your book come out into the world and, and the editors and the publicists and everyone who, who makes a production like this. It's just a it pretty a extraordinary yeah, gift mm. to be to be part of that world.
0: Mm. It is a beautiful thing. There aren't any heroes in the book, really, are there? Except for Heidi, I guess she's a hero. Yeah. Um, and Ben, who's an absence... The husband is an absence throughout pretty much the whole book. And we've been thinking of him as a hero, but should we?
1: (laughs) No. Someone wrote about him, a bloke probably, excuse me, to the blokes in the audience, um, as as the hero. And I was like, oh, is he really? I don't think he is. Um, It was hard to write from a technical perspective and for writers in the audience, um, writing someone that you're... (laughs) That your you know protagonist is is chasing, but having him never present on the page is a really difficult thing to do. And I did write probably forty thousand words of 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 backstory for for Ben and Mim that aren't in there. That this is the kinds of crazy things we do to ourselves, us writers, um, because I needed to make sure that the um, I, I needed a, the readers to go with me. I needed that premise at least to be to be solid for for a reader to be able to say, yeah, okay, she would cross the country for for this bloke. A because of that that um, past connection for the deep love that they've shared, also because she's really cross at him for leaving her in this situation, um, and because she doesn't she can't think of anything else to do but 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 search for him. But in terms of um, in terms of having him on the page, that that was a, a tricky one to get around mm. to, to to make him believable. Mm.
0: And he certainly had feet of clay, we could say. Yes, indeed, <laughs> indeed. All right. Uh Does anybody want to ask Kate something? And if you do, would you like to come up and use the microphone where Alira is waving at you from? It's so delightful seeing
1: an audience. I'm just going to soak you all in because you're lovely.
0: (laughs) I'll give it a minute or two in case anybody's just trying to conquer nerves here.
1: I do that. I have to say it under my breath to myself first, especially if I really like the author on stage. Mm
0: -hmm. G'day. What makes a hero a hero and what doesn't?
1: Just a small question there for the end, thank you. (laughs) Great question. What makes a hero a hero and what doesn't? I think... Certainly what makes um, Mim a hero, I think, is her... ..is her capacity to be dogged about what she wants. Um, And and she does have tunnel vision, which I don't think is necessarily a, a heroic quality, uh, but certainly in 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 that book, I think also the capacity to to recognise and in some way be at peace with with your flaws, with her flaws. That that certainly what it was in in the mother fault and in and in Skylarking too with with Kate, incredibly flawed character, but she had insight in the end, which I think is is one um, that's that's really important. I don't know if that answers the question. I think I'll be asking that question of myself for a long time to come, but thank you for it.
0: Okay, uh, feel free to come up if you want to. Uh, hello. Hi. Mag? Um, you touched on it a little bit, but I'd like to know, I mean, this is really a, um, a woman's book, you know, about a woman's story and
1: frustrations. Um, how, what has male readers' response been to it? Um, great question. Um, some of them, like that, that interesting conversation that I had with with Jock Sorong when he was really interested in this idea that uh, she was so flawed because of the, the, the sexual transgression and it was like a, a kind of blinding moment of, um, uh, of insight to him that... Oh wow, we don't we don't ask this of our of our male characters. Um, so that's certainly a response. Um, the the other one of um, men who know me has been, gosh, is this really what all of you think of us? <laughs> and I said, Good. yes, yes, it is in in many ways. I you know I know when you write a book like this, you're expecting um, uh, women readers, of course. But I I suppose that you know you're always hoping go on give it to your dad give it to your brother make them read something else and and I love when that happens or in book clubs where it happens uh, as well men i do find like to um like to try and get me on on plot things <laughs> thank you great question oh, there's spray and everything so covid safe i'm impressed <laughs> thank you kate my question is did you talk to your children while you were writing the book and Has your eldest child read the book? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, She hasn't. One of the things that was really interesting about launching it via Zoom is that, of course, this part of the author life is... um, you know your kids aren't necessarily privy to it this is the bit where we run away and go oh my gosh a whole bed in a hotel room (laughs) all to myself um so what was interesting is that they of course came to the to the launch online in the in the lounge room while I was in the other room and Gracie my eldest um on whom Essie is you know slightly based um was so cross at me and she was cross at me at two things she was cross at me because I swore and my grandmother was there, and so she thought that was terrible. Um, but she was also cross at me because of the way I, I spoke about um, how difficult motherhood is. And I, I know that this will be um, a reckoning when, when she comes to read it. They are incredibly proud of the fact that I'm a writer and when they were little they used to play a game where they would get a laptop bag and go off to uni which I was doing at the time and be a writer and I thought I am doing a good thing (laughs) I am doing a good thing here Um, so they love that but they do uh, you know you know I've been careful in some ways to think Gracie my eldest will always be able to find what I've said about mothering as well in this new way when we were on podcasts and YouTube and um, that's been something to be mindful of as I've as I've talked about it as well thank Mm. you for that question
0: Mm. good question and I want to know what you're up to now (gasps) and where the next book is taking you backwards or forwards it's
1: taking me backwards it's taking me backwards again. You know, the idea comes and you must go with it. My my studio. I've got a studio now, which is such a delight, just in my backyard, and it's covered with pictures of um, meat because I'm writing it about an abattoir in in Melbourne and um, a strike. So it's a lot about union movement and women's experiences during the during the 30s. I did um, a little bit of a work experience at the butcher the other day. <laughs> It was so interesting. Like a kid in a candy store, honestly, you know, go sailing, do a little bit of butchery. This is the gig. This is why you want to be a writer when you grow up so that basically you can just find some weird thing that you want to have a go at. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I've been a vegetarian at times in my life. My daughter's a vegetarian. My mother's a vegetarian. But have I ever been as delighted... By the artistry of meat in my life, never. I'm so into it. So that's where it's that's where it's taking me um, right now. That's what I'm writing next.
0: Are these the things that you tell your creative writing students? Like, don't don't just sit and research. Get out there. Yes, I do.
1: And I think um, I mentioned Kelly Gardner before and she said, she said you know, always walk the ground. And I think the other day I was out in Footscray where the book's set and I was trying to stand, trying to see exactly where you would stand to watch Melbourne Cup and where you'd be able to hear it from. And and, and so walking the ground. But also people tell amazing stories. And the gift that you have when you say, actually, I'm writing a book on this, would you talk to me about it? And the butcher, the sailor, the lighthouse keeper, they are so ready to share those stories and it's the great gift that we have as, as writers that people are so generous mm. with their stories and that you can sit like I did with Fred, you know, Kate's great-great-grandson on the, on the train and I've got five hours of recording, you know, his story because he said no one's ever wanted to hear these stories. And you know, I think that's that's what we're here to do. We're here to share stories. We're here to remember things, to project things as well, to to imagine. You know, it is um, it's a great great privilege to have this job.
0: And very generously, you're also involved in helping other people get out there and get heard via a podcast oh. that you do.
1: And as I was saying to you, when I grow up, um, not only do I want to be a novelist, but I would like to interview writers about their books because it is the greatest gig in the world and and the podcast the first time podcast has just been a dream you know i i interviewed kate grenville last year and and we laughed together and she thought that i was funny and like is there a greater gift for a writer than to think kate grenville who's every book i have on my shelf you know thinks that i'm funny or um you know and and it's it's wonderful it also makes you realize for all the times that i've sat and thought i'm not doing this writing gig right Like, there must be... There's rules about historical fiction or there's rules about speculative fiction. How should I do it better? There is no... There are no rules. Everyone does it differently. Some people are published for the first time at 60. Some, when they're, you know, 21, good luck to them. I'm also jealous. But, you know, some people never win an award. Some people win all the awards. It's it's incredibly, um, incredibly inspiring to be able to hear all those stories. And then, when the microphone and the recording equipment gets turned off I get all the gossip it's amazing (laughs) what's happening out there in the literary world amazing
0: Kate Mildenhall it has been totally inspiring talking to you and I hope people are going to just hot footed over there to the writer's tent please
1: do just come and say hello just so I can say I met a real life reader
0: buy the book and get Kate to sign it for you and right now would you thank her very very warmly please
1: thank you and thank you
0: Kath wonderful
1: to talk to you